Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, December the 30th, 2022. We're getting towards the end of the year, almost at the end of the year on the show. We've done several hundred shows, mostly with authors and mostly with authors with books. One of the good pieces of news from 2022 is the book remains a very vibrant and foundational piece of our culture. And many of our conversations have been uh, on Keen On this year have been about books. I was particularly intrigued to get a, a Substack newsletter from my old friend Chris Schroeder on what he read in 2022. And we're going to have a, a, a unashamedly bookish conversation with Chris, who, like me, is a, a very eclectic and aggressive reader. Chris, um, where do you read? You're, you're a man like me. You're on and off airplanes. You travel around. You're based in D.C. You spend a lot of your life in Asia, in the Middle East. Uh, you've got kids all over the place. Where do you like to read? You know, it's interesting. I mean, to me, reading is a discipline like working out or eating healthily or whatever. I make commitments, first and foremost, that reading is important to me. And my day-to-day -day work where I work with entrepreneurs around the world means that I read a lot of blogs and that kind of a thing. But books, which is what you and I are really about to talk about here, it, it is a discipline where I say every day, wherever I am, I'm not gonna do social media until I've read 100 pages, or I'm not gonna do other things until I've read 150 pages. And I measure it on a regular basis so that I can keep pace. And the beauty of the travel that you described is if I'm going to Singapore, I can get two or three books done each way and uh, other than that, though, it could be in my office here on that couch behind me. Uh, it could be in a coffee shop somewhere else. It doesn't really matter to me because once I'm with a book, the rest of the world seems to evaporate. Chris, you're a tech investor and an entrepreneur as well. I wonder whether someone needs to come up with a, an equivalent of a Fitbit for books. <laughs> it would be a good way to measure the things that, that we do. And, and I have to tell you, Andrew, I mean, you know this, like everything in life, measurement matters. I mean, I know every month how many books I've read and it is, I have a commitment to read at least 100 books a year. And I know that I'm falling behind. I've got to organize my time because I value the depth that books give and the insight that they share. Some people might be thinking quality rather than quantity. Why the 100 books, at least 100 books a year, Chris? I used to read a book a week and I read fairly quickly and I thought that was pretty impressive. But there were two conversations I had with two very close friends that really changed me about five years ago. Uh, the first was I have a friend who's a wonderful reader and has given me much advice in great books, and he got to 100 a year. And I thought to myself, if I could double the number of books I've read in five years, that's 250 books. How wonderful would that be? How much richness and depth would I get? Every book for me is someone else's life in some form. And so, one, there's just a sense of not quantity for quantity's sake, but just the idea of enhancing the experience because we have so little time left, no matter how young we are to be able to read so many great books that are written there. And that's the second piece of advice I got from a dear friend of mine who one day gave me a very interesting math equation. He said, look, if you live to actuarial tables and you assume you get those, which you may not, and you multiply that times 50 books, how many books is that that you'll read before you leave? And whatever your number is, it's shockingly small. And it is an incredibly empowering thing. It's not a sad thing at all. It is very empowering to say to yourself, you know something? An hour of a quality book is actually better than an hour of a lousy book. And so what that taught me was, one, is to focus on quantity, 
but also that if I'm reading a book and I don't enjoy it by page 50 or 60, I pull the plug and move on to something else. And I think yeah, I, I'm even worse than you. I'm so impatient. It's by the fifth or the sixth paragraph, I can pull a plug on a book. I totally hear it. You know, and Andrew, it's so interesting because I'm, I'm, I probably have a little bit of that in me. But I've also learned from friends that if, if someone like if you tell me, Andrew, this is a book I have to read because I know your judgment and everything else. If it's slow by page 60, I'm still going to stick with it because my filters matter. And it was staggering to me this year to see that in the books that I read, literally half of them came to me from friends I admire the way they read. And almost by definition, I'll muscle through that book because I respect the people who've recommended it. You uh, you wrote about the loss of your mother this year, very moving piece, Chris. Um, we all, of course, unfortunately, for better or worse, have to die. Do you think that on your deathbed, you might think about books, books you haven't read? Do you think that might be one reason why you're such an aggressive reader? You don't want to miss out? What a powerful question. Look, I think there are two ways that I would answer it. I think one, and particularly the loss of a parent, is this way. But you and I have lost, you know, very close friend that we share and many other people who are very young and older. And I think every time you have a loss, you think about the clock. And so I think that to me, even my mother's passing, it is a reminder to me that every hour counts, that the one truly zero sum that we have in our life is the hour that we give to something. And that was a gift in a way that she reminded me of. So I hope that on my deathbed, I'm not thinking about the books I missed, but I do think that getting to that point, I am thinking on a regular basis, there's just so many books that I want to read. Can I be hyperly focused to be very happy that the insight that I'm getting from them makes me a better executive, it makes me a better friend, it makes me a better family member, makes me look at the world in a broader way. Chris, you do many things. I describe you um, for people watching as an entrepreneur, investor and writer. I should probably add reader. Uh, you are a writer. Many people will be familiar with your excellent book, uh, Startup Rising, The Entrepreneurial Revolution, Remaking the Middle East, which was a big hit a few years ago. The nice thing to me about reading versus writing is we waste so much time writing. It takes so many hours, whereas reading takes many hours too, but you can accomplish a lot. You can't spend a whole afternoon reading and not read, whereas you can spend a whole afternoon writing and not write. Yeah. Look, I, I agree with that. I would say two things. One, um, the act of writing for me has always been something of a selfish act, meaning whether it was that book or the blogs I do, or I've written a lot of articles for places like the Washington Post and Wall Street Journal and whatever. And it's certainly nice to touch an audience, but for me, it's actually an exercise of discipline. If I can't articulate something I'm thinking coherently in 750 words or 1500 words or whatever it is, I don't have it. And so to me, it's a way of clearing the kind of bullshit in my head and, and to have the discipline of working at it. So those moments when I have nothing to write or I'm frustrated in my writing, I actually look at them as constructive ways of making sure that I'm honing down my thinking. And, and secondly, reading is the same way. So I find that one of the things that I do is when I finish a book, often when I'm reading a book, I'll either dog ear it physically or I'll write some notes, not many, you know, maybe 10 or 15 takeaways from the book. And then I actually go back and go through them again. And sometimes I'll write them up and send them in, as an email to a friend or I keep them for my blog for the end of the year so I can remember them more tightly. And I have learned that 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 sort of proactive reading, almost reading the way we write, has actually made me absorb and understand a book as well. So I, I look at it sometimes as a burden on both ends, writing and reading, but more often than not, it's sort of a refining of getting to the essence of what's being conveyed or what I'm trying to convey. 
people watching this rather than listening will see Chris's magnificent study library behind him. What do you do with your old books, Chris? I'm because I, I, I do this show now, I get sent hundreds of books a month. I'll bet. I'll bet. And my wife is continually having a conversation. I won't use the complain word, having a conversation with me about the number of books I have. I have my own library, which is now overflowing. Yeah. Do you like collecting books? Are you a collector? Do you think that one has almost a moral obligation once one's read a book to keep it? Or do you like giving them away? I do. I think the answer is both. And there's a refining uh, process because my wife is very much of your wife. I mean, you're, you're looking over here, like over there is like, this is, these are two rows of China. Over here is, is, is Vietnam and Korea. And that's Winston Churchill. That's World War I and World War II. Over here is European oh history, it's American history. Here, I've got the same in front of me on, on innovation and technology and startups and uh, religion and faith. And um, two things that I end up doing with it. I mean, one is I just have tremendous comfort being surrounded by books. Every one of them is kind of a friend. I remember when I read them and I sometimes go back to them and pull them off. Uh, but to your point, I love giving them away. There's nothing thrills me more than one of my kid comes home and says, do you have X and could I borrow it from you or could I have you like that? to me is one of the great joys. And I hand out books all the time. Um, but the other thing, and I learned this also with my mother's passing, is that I don't want to belabor my family either with them. So uh, every month or two months, I go through my books and I say, you know, am I ever really going to come back to this one? Do I want one of my kids to have this book? And I'm constantly giving books away. I probably get away, give away 100 books a quarter um, in just reading down what I have. Generous enough, you often have parties where you celebrate um, an author. I remember my parents yes. always said to me that in order to encourage me to read, that they would always buy me any book I wanted, even when I was an adult. I do that with my children. Do you think awesome. that's um, a healthy thing to do as a parent? Yes, I'm assuming you've got three kids. You encourage them to read too. There's no substitute for reading, certainly not Twitter or YouTube or or or, um, or TikTok, is it, Chris? No, I don't. I, look, I'm biased because I just love the depth of a book. I love a good blog post. I love a good article. I do love reading. One of the things that I've done in the last couple of years, COVID allowed me the flexibility to do this more, is that when I, like, I just recently read a book on the on the Cultural Revolution, fantastic uh, book. And um, then what I do at night is I actually go to YouTube and I, I get visuals of it. I'll find the best documentary on what I just read. Or if I just I just went to an exhibit of art at the National Gallery, a sergeant in Spain, which was a magnificent thing. And last night I spent three hours watching documentaries about uh, sergeant. And so you, you can marry the stuff. But at the end of the day, I'm like you. There's not a substitute for the book. And um, yes, with a, I hope I hope you and I did not spoil our children. But there was always money for books. Always. Anytime. They did wanted spoil, a book, I, they I think parents have to spoil their children, Chris. Um, I strongly encourage everyone to subscribe to your your Substack. Um, do you like Substack? I mean, you're 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 quite active on it. You're also active on Twitter. You have a lot of hundreds of thousands of people following on LinkedIn. What is it about Substack that you like, Chris? Some of it's experimental. I mean, I do have a large following in LinkedIn, and I actually post my blog there as well because it tends to be a different audience and it is large. But I will tell you that the tools of Substack are magnificent. They're very easy to use. Uh, you can add all sorts of visuals and do different things with them. You automatically email it out to the people that matter to you. I mean, they make it easy as pie. And uh, I like that element of it just as a guy who likes to write and make it also visual and interesting. What I've not leveraged it for because I don't care about it per se, but I think is a, rev a small revolution is 
the ease with which they facilitate good writing to be paid for. And I'm not, it doesn't, I, I don't need to put my work behind a hundred dollars a year or whatever, but there are some people who are much more thoughtful and richer than I am. And they really are making this part of their life and income. And so there's no tool better than Substack to facilitate one's ability to get recognized and even paid for what they do. And um, I love it. I mean, I, as a, not only as a writer, but as a reader, there are probably a dozen or two dozen that I adore and have no compunction paying for because I feel like uh, the, the writer deserves it. Chris, you and I first met each other in the mid nineties when you put uh, Newsweek and uh, the Washington Post online. So you've been around the internet for as long as I have when I had my internet startup. What do you make of the current situation with Substack in particular? I've had a lot of conversations, particularly with my friend Keith Tier about Substack replacing Twitter, given what Elon Musk seems to be doing to Twitter, undermining it on so many fronts. Can Substack become uh, a, a, perhaps a more thoughtful place than Twitter, a place for writers and thinkers and readers, as opposed to propagandists and lunatics of one kind or another? <laughs> uh, first of all, just as a quick uh, a check, I, I was very glad and honored to be with the Washington Post and Newsweek and other publications earlier in their days, but I was on the shoulders of many people who really started it before me and did some amazing things with it. And the team that I worked with really did all the real work and the creative work. And uh, so just as a quick aside, I'm glad to have been on the journey, but it was only, I was only a part of that journey. But to your question, look, I, you know, I just tend not to get spun up by things uh, too often. There are elements of Elon Musk I admire tremendously and I'm unapologetic in that admiration. And, and I assume you know him, do you? Uh, no, no, I've met him. I don't know him. I mean, there, as you know, there, I have some very dear friends who have done amazing things in the technology world that really are friends and people I know well. He's not that. But I, I will tell you that there are things about him that I admire tremendously, and there are things about him which are certainly stylistically much different than me. But I tend to be kind of wait and see. I think Twitter was very problematic before he bought it. Um, and I think it'd become a exercise of FOMO. And it, the thing I loved about Twitter for the first years of it was it was my ability, almost like this entire conversation. I followed people that I wanted to read what they read. I followed you because I knew you were going to post interesting things. And if you linked to something, I wanted to read that thing. And Twitter became something different in the, you know, the last three or four years where everyone feels like they need to not only have an opinion, but be emotional and criticize each other. And you know, I think in fairness, a lot of the data that's coming out on Twitter should make everyone fall back on the idea that there are things that have been going on with it well before Elon Musk that are worthy of, of reconsidering. So with Elon taking it over, um, I'm waiting and seeing. I'm enjoying it. I still use it every day. I still follow people I care about and still get good articles about them. And I don't have a judgment or any data to have judgment on. And it. you're a blue tick like me. So maybe there is a future. Enough, enough Elon Musk. This but I don't, but I will tell you, Andrew, I don't think it substitutes subs. Sub, it is a place to find sub stacks, but it's not the place. I mean, one of the things that's so interesting about a lot of social media, and I, I've said this to the founders of Substack. They, the discovery is really problematic. It's not easy. I mean, the first step of a lot of these companies. Right. It's very hard. In fact, I was looking, I, I couldn't agree more. I was looking for your stuff on my Substack, and it was confusing. I didn't quite know how to do it. And, and Twitter still is a good discovery tool. And so we'll see how it plays out. Well, enough Twitter and Substack. Let's talk books, Chris. We've got about okay. 10 minutes left. Uh, what and how I read in 2022. I'm warning you in advance, I am at the end going to ask you for your book of the year. So you can think about that for the moment. But looking through your list, and it's a wonderful list, one book that I'd never heard of that sounds absolutely fascinating, and I have to get the author on my show, is 
blind spot, the global rise of unhappiness and how leaders missed it by somebody called John Clifton, who's the CEO of, of, of Gallup. Sounds like yeah. a fascinating book. Tell it is a fantastic it. book, and he is fantastic. And the Gallup team, I think, are still the best down the middle analysis of what's happening around the world. And I'm very happy to introduce you because I think you'd like each other and he'd be great on this wonderful uh, uh, podcast that you have. Uh, but what I would tell you is that one of the things that they have always done is to get beyond the kind of who's up and who's down data to get beyond is it a good thing or a bad thing and to really try to unpack sentiment. How are people feeling? How are they thinking about the world around them? And I remember, and I wrote actually a book review about his book and it's in the book as well, that when I started following the Middle East, particularly in the entrepreneurial community, and as you remember, the entrepreneurial community were in their 20s. So the same people building startups 10 years ago were also the people in Tahrir Square, right? There was a huge Venn diagram about people wanting to unleash their capabilities. People would go to traditional data like GDP or GDP per capita and, and say, you know, Egypt's doing pretty well. Like this is a pretty good time for Egypt. They'd had a rough period and things are pretty well. It was only Gallup who really started digging in in their questions to understand how people are feeling on their happiness cycle. Are they feeling content? Do they feel like the world's gonna be better in the next three years or the last three years? And through some very interesting technology and mobile technology at the time, they had stunningly lousy numbers. And I have said this and I believe this and the book isn't you know, not as self-complimentary, but I think they predicted the Arab uprising before anybody else. And I think that when you read this book, you unpack the way they do things and the way that they look at the world. Right. And you realize that they have a handle on the way things are changing bottom up that are far more predictive and far more illustrative of how our policymakers, our CEOs, all of us day to day should be thinking about the world around us. So it's a it's an absolutely powerful data fill read. I'm I'm assuming it's a sort of top villain analysis that suggests that there's not necessarily a connection between poverty or hunger and unhappiness because it seems to me some of the unhappiest people i know actually have no material reason to be unhappy what's there very briefly chris what's what's the explanation you know you could go back and read the great historian from the 1940s or 50s uh, crane britain who was sort of an expert on revolutions and even then without as much data he would note that almost every major revolution that happened happened when there was actually an uptick economically and many things going on in places society not exclusively but very often and i think what was missed is is the string that you're pulling on overall which is that that the poverty and economic order doesn't necessarily equate to where people are being concerned about their day-to-day -day life and their opportunity to have success for themselves and their families and i think one of, i learned this even when i was in politics over 20 years ago is that if it's not just what people have in their pocket today, but their perception of what they may have in five years. Do they think they're playing in a game that is a rigged game or one when they have an opportunity to actualize themselves? And you can have people who net net are in a pretty good stay in aggregate economic numbers who, in the point of fact are saying to themselves, I don't feel those way. I think the game is rigged. I feel like that we, I can't perform in the game. I can't actualize and take care of my family. And that's when you know momentous things often happen in history. I have to self-promote myself. Some of the books that you you're you're promoting uh, in your newsletter, also authors and books that we featured. Elliot Ackerman's The Fifth Act. William Dalrymple was on the show um, earlier this year. Chris Miller. Fan. I know you're a big fan of Chris Miller's Chip War that won the FT Business Book of the Year. He's a yeah. star or coming star. He was on the show earlier yeah. this week, actually. And also Catherine Belton. 
Putin's people that came out a couple of years ago. She's certainly the bravest writer. I'm not sure if she's she's a very good journalist too. Any thoughts yeah. on those books, Chris? I, I I mean, you picked among you know you asked me to pick one favorite, which is almost impossible. But well, I'm going to leave that at the end, so you can't pick any of those. But no, uh, and and, and I'm, I'm not sure there'd be that kind of one book where I'd say take it uh, with you. But in their area and field, they revolutionized my thinking. They're every one of those women and men that you met, you mentioned are at their heart astounding journalists. They drive down the middle. They're not really trying to drive a theme at you and, and convince it with data. They took the data and the research where it took them. And they, you know, in every one of those books, and I, I might add to Kevin Rood's book, The Avoidable War, they yeah. take you, uh, which New is Zealand, about China. New Zealand, former Australian prime minister, yeah. So he had this incredible view from Australia. He's neither American nor Chinese, but but affected deeply by both of them. And it, frankly, he had just written a PhD about the China circumstance of which this book is a more civilian friendly version of it but it also shared this ability to offer insight by driving down the middle and letting the data take you where it is and uh, all those books that you mentioned are, are exact perfect examples of that and i forgot to add actually uh richard reeves of boys and men of which you're mentioned and certainly there are some stories from you in it an important book by uh, our mutual friend richard reeves have you had him on yet, by the way? Because yeah, he's been on a couple of times. Yeah, he he's fantastic. A couple of months ago, talking. Do you do you concur with him? Is there a cultural crisis, Chris, for boys and men in in American culture? I, I think his data is very provocative. Having raised two boys, and the pressure that's on boys uh, growing up, um, I think is a very profound question. But I think what's so important was this is not just a book about how to raise boys in the 21st century. Though that is an element of this book. It is an unpacking of the circumstances of men, my age, your age, older, younger, and where they are, where their heads are at. It's a reflection of how they view themselves in the world and what have you. And if you don't unpack that, then you don't have an understanding about where you can actually make decisions to, to alleviate circumstances that are bad, both for men and women and for us in society overall. He's gotten a lot of heat for that book. You know, there are people, even when I wrote that piece about it, people would call me up and say, great, you're defending one more book you know, writing off how men are really not bad people after all. I'm like, what kind of he's ridiculous not, yeah. analysis? I mean, he's not, yeah, and the reverse is who wants books saying that men... And, and actually, I was going to follow up there. He told me, I mean, it was off screen about the trouble. We share, actually, an agent. But he told me about the trouble he had um, publishing the book. And actually, the end, it yes. got published by Brookings, and it's been yes. a bestseller. Yes. I, I think one thing that does trouble me, I'm not sure whether it troubles you, is that the publishing industry has become a little ghettoized intellectually, do you think? You think? <laughs> Absolutely. It's become unsafe to say things that are unsafe. It's When did that happen? I mean, you know, go where the data goes. If you disagree with it, come up with better data. If there are better solutions, we should have them. But I think book publishing at its best, and I think this is fiction as much as nonfiction, is the ultimate marketplace of ideas. Let it bloat. Let it, let's debate it. Let's argue it out with civility, but with firmness. But what do we want to do? We want to be in some sort of soft version of book burning or book banning. Is that where we want to be? I, I don't, that's never made any sense. Yeah, to me. well, I'm certainly not part of that. Uh, one, one more point before we get to your book of the year, Chris. Uh, we've done a number of shows on China. Uh, we had Orville Shell on the show a couple of times. And I was particularly intrigued that you included in your 2022 reading list, uh, Henry Kissinger's On China, his book um, from 2012. Uh, we had a, a young American journalist on the show who has a new book out about 
criticizing, actually more than criticizing, attacking Kennedy, uh, Kissinger, Kissinger being essentially a stooge of, of China. I, you mentioned you've been in politics. I mean, uh, you're not just an entrepreneur and investor and writer. You're also someone who worked with James Baker. You know your way around Washington, D.C. Are you concerned at all, Chris, with the increasing hysteria, both on the left and right about China? I, I'm concerned about hysteria wherever it may find in whatever manifestation, uh, whether it's uh, uh, left and right or about uh, economic class or whatever. I don't do hysteria. Like, I think at the end of the day, we should let stuff go where it goes and have a good, reasonable debate about it. Now, Kissinger is a fascinating figure in American history and particularly in parts of the world I go to in Southeast Asia and other emerging markets. Those who remember them and remember them, I deal with a lot of people in their 20s and 30s who can actually barely identify him now. But if you speak to their parents, you know, they have a certain lens on him that might be different than the, the sort of uh, uh, foreign policy elite who still idealize him net net. But the fact remains, he's a remarkable brain with a remarkable world experience. And I actually had a couple of Kissinger books on my list. This book on leadership, uh, which are six leaders that he knew, was, was riveting reading. And the fact that he wrote that at almost 100 years old to me was fascinating, no matter whether I agree or disagree with elements of his policy and his behaviors over the years. His On China book is an, hardly an apologist book. I mean, it's actually a very accessible history. I mean, at the end, he certainly falls into the camp of let's be very careful before we declare, you know, the, the Cold War together. There's a lot of mutual interest there. We should figure them out. And there is a reasonable argument to say that's not the right approach. But I think there's a reasonable argument to say you should always ask that question. Kevin Rudd asked that question. Like, is there room for us to maneuver? Is there room for us to have conversation? But putting that aside as a history, a tour in one volume in an accessible way, particularly for Americans who don't necessarily have a lot of language for China, I found his book fascinating and extremely useful. Yeah, I don't think it would necessarily be the worst thing for Joe Biden to make Henry Kissinger his emissary for Beijing, send him off and have a chat with Xi and set something up because this warmongering doesn't benefit either country. So, Chris, the time has come for your Christopher Schroeder's book of the year for 2022. What book? If you could just choose one book, Chris, that you read well, in 2022. I know it's unfair for all the other it's all books, but, but you still you've got to pick one book. What is it? it it's unfair. And, and I even had trouble picking one book by category in my blog post. But if you put a gun to me and said, this is a book that made you really step back and reflect and think about a historical circumstance and its relevance today, it's kind of a, a legendary, that book that was written, I, it's got to be at least 30 years ago, by Czeslaw Milos. And the mm. book is called The Classic, The Captive Mind. Yes. And it's an incredible deep look into the rise of Stalinism and why people accepted it, didn't accept it, how people adjusted to it after he died. What does it take to create authoritarian regimes? what analogies might be relevant to us today, what analogies are irrelevant to us today. And I must say almost every page I step back saying, again, I cannot be hysterical. I want to be thoughtful. And there are lessons here that are relevant to the way that I look at what's happening in America, the way what's happening in China, um, and the sort of theological almost divide that's happening in many parts of the world that are arguing, in effect, the authoritarianism is a better approach to getting things done for regular people in the streets than democracy. And it just allowed me to breathe and to think about it with a very specific historical context, which he, from his background from, I think, Czechoslovakia, 
uh, allowed Aaron. him to have a very good He's lens. Polish, but it, it's Polish. I'm sorry. You're right. I just You're did right. an interview with Joby Warwick about Syria and. You're you're a man whose heart's very much in the Middle East. We seem to have given up even on the idea of democracy in the Middle East. Maybe that's something we need to revisit in 2023. I I think look at the end of the day, democracy is a messy thing, and it's in messy by intent. But the idea that somehow or other in democracy you can't build is historically preposterous, right? I mean, the Panama Canal was built from a democracy. The highway system of the United States was built in a democracy. The Marshall Plan was in a democracy. It was we in a democracy who put a man on the moon. I think it's a failure of leadership. I think it is a failure of imagination that suggests that we can't be great, successful builders in a democratic environment. We have we have allowed democracy to become something that our founders, uh, our founding fathers did not intend it. In fact, tried to build fail safes to avoid it from happening. And I think we need to examine that. We need to examine our governance and stop making this an idea that democracy's best days are over if, in fact, we're not actually implementing it uh, effectively.